Hi, everyone. I'm Salma Qureshi. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas San Antonio's neuroscience research podcast. Today is May 6th, 2021, and we're talking with Josh Goldberg, who is Associate Professor of Medical Neurobiology at Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Hi, Josh. Hi, how are you? So Josh's lab combines neurophysiology, advanced imaging techniques, and mathematical modeling to understand how the biophysical properties of autonomously active neurons contribute to their degeneration, as well as the pathophysiological adaptations that follow degeneration within neural networks. Um, he uses a variety of preclinical animal models of Parkinson's disease and other movement disorders to model the earliest time points for diagnosis and intervention. Um, Josh is, is also a Wilson Lab alum and therefore family. So welcome back, Josh. And we've got with us also today, Charlie Wilson. Hi, Charlie. Hi. So Josh, you've been working on uh, kind of work, working on defining that the earliest uh, phase of, of Parkinson's in this long pre preclinical prodromal period before we see any motor symptoms at all. Um, so it's super interesting to me that you, you're, you're, I guess, I think of you as a biophysicist who spent most of your time thinking about autonomous pacemakers and ion flux. There's, I'm sure there's a lot more <laughs> to you, but that's how I think about you. But um, it's, you're, you're, at, at, you, you've worked so long at that scale, yet you're so earnestly working out all the causal chain that leads and connects this scale to, to, to human clinical symptomology. Um, so... So it seems like so much of what we know about Parkinson's is rooted in midbrain dopamine and in pharmacological and transgenic models of Parkinson's. And you're kind of pivoting away from that now. You've done a lot of that, but you're, you're doing something a bit different. Uh, tell us about your angle and how you're getting at this prodromal phase and what that is. Thanks. So yeah, so Parkinson's disease is a, is a movement disorder. And we know that the, uh, that the movement disorders, the symptoms, bradykinesia, akinesia, difficulty to move, difficulty, slowness of movement, uh, tremor, are all associated with the loss of do dopamine cells. Um, but people with Parkinson's disease actually suffer from a variety of non-motor symptoms, anxiety, depression, um, difficulty sleeping, constipation is one of the earliest symptoms, and, the, and some of these symptoms actually predate diagnosis. Now, they're not specific enough uh, to be used to diagnose the disease any earlier because people who are elderly suffer from constipation and sleep, you know, sleeping problems. And, but, but we know that, we now know that these are um, organic symptoms of the disease. Uh, again, not enough to be able to diagnose the disease with. So, the idea is that we, we, there's a pretty good, I mean, physiologists have a pretty good knowledge of late stage Parkinson's disease. And, and that's sort of where I was trained with Haggai Bergman here in Jerusalem and then with Charlie and Trevor Sermai is in looking at, at sort of late stage Parkinson's disease. And, and we understand that as physiologists. And there's a lot of exciting work, again, you know, looking at oscillations that Charlie had contributed to that, that occur in Parkinson's brains in late, late stages. Um, but most of the work in, the, in this prodromal period where people realize, you know, there's a pathology, a Parkinsonian pathology that happens during that period, most of that research is done by biochemists, geneticists, um, pathologists, and there isn't really much physiological work. And I think sort of the assumption in the field is that if we, if there's this Parkinsonian pathology, alpha-synuclein, 
uh, that's killing cells, and, and that's why it's killing cells in parts of the brain that are causing the symptoms, but, but that's, you know, that's the level of explanation. But really, physiologists haven't gone in and said, wait a minute, maybe cells aren't dying. And even if they are dying, clearly there's a period before they die where something is happening to neurons, and their physiological, you know, activities obviously changing in response uh, um, to, to this pathology. And we should be looking at that because if we are able to look at the physiological changes, first of all, it can, you know, maybe give us a way to, you know, really have a better understanding of, of this disease process at the earlier stages and possibly come with what, what I call uh, physiological biomarkers. So if, if certain neurons are acting a little bit weird because they're be beginning to have some pathology early on, and then that affects you know, some physiological readout in the body, then maybe we'll have, you know, we could piece together and start putting together sort of these biomark physiological biomarkers as ind indicators of the disease. So I think it's really, oh, sorry, excuse me, I have this problem in my office where the light goes off if you don't move. So I, I think, you, you know, to complement this really good understanding of Lacey's Parkinsonism, where there's a lot of understanding of the physiology, we need to be doing that at the earlier stages. That'll enable us to, to you know, maybe diagnose the disease earlier, but also maybe possibly come up with interventions, um, ideas for interventions at the earlier stages. So tell us about why you're looking in the, so you're looking at sort of the, the sort of bagel targets that maybe produce some of these prodromal symptoms that you described like constipation. So um, talk about what we, can you talk about what we know? Um, those are, we see early uh, evidence that there are Louis, there's Louis pathology in those areas. Is that right? And yeah, can you just say something about, about where you're looking and how you're doing it? Right, so um, we know, I mentioned the, the alpha synuclein. We know about that pathology for over 100 years from the work of Dr. Louis, and the, these are, the pathology is named after him, but it's been sort of uh, characterized more closely about two decades ago that there seems to be this progression of pathology throughout, throughout the brain, and, uh, and it begins in the brain stem. So there are regions of the brain that first exhibit these pathologies, and then it sort of expands. And there's a whole discussion about how that happens. Is it, you know, is it more of a prion-like disease? Is it not? What are the determinants? But um, uh, the, so the idea is that one of the earliest places where that happens, and what, what, what the scientist, you know, Heiko Brock, who described this, called stage one Parkinson's disease, which is a, is a, a stage which is, you know, well ahead of diagnosis, happens, uh, you find this pathology in, the, in, in vagal motor neurons, in motor neurons that innervate the GI tract, and they're located and the brainstem. And that's one of the first stations. So my idea is let's, you know, if we model uh, something like a Louis body and only in that position, we'll be modeling a very early component. We'll have a relatively, you know, well-defined pathology because it's only one place we put it there and, and then see how, how that affects, how that affects the animal, how it affects the phenotype and, and, and then try to understand. And, and we, we found out that that is sufficient to, to cause this sort of Louis-like pathology in that region is sufficient to create a symptom in the animal models in the mice that's, that's, that's similar to the human uh, uh, constipation, which again, 
it's, uh, we know is one of the earliest, if not the earliest, prodromal symptoms. So that, that sort of gives us a handle on a very early time point and, and, and look at a you know, situation where the cells, we can see that they're not necessarily dead, but there's definitely, the physiology changes in a dramatic way that then can be associated with the, with the phenotype. And I, th and I think that, you know, we've worked on the vagus for, for quite some time, but I think that concept can be carried on to other symptoms. So for instance, I'm involved with a, with a bunch of uh, colleagues in Europe um, on, a, on a project looking at anxiety and depression. And we're sort of doing the same kind of, looking at the same kind of questions looking at the rafe nucleus. We know the rafe nucleus is related to a lot of things, but it's also been implicated in anxiety and depression. We also know that Parkinson's patients um, have organic anxiety. They're not, they're not depressed and anxious because they know they're sick, but this is actually a symptom that's organic. And, and, and it turns out um, that there are even dopamine cells in the dorsal rafe nucleus. And it turns out that they may even be, they may be selectively uh, lost in Parkinson's patients. So Glenda Halliday has an old paper showing that there's loss of dopamine cells in that region. Um, and that again suggests maybe we, you know, maybe we have the same kind of thing. We have, you know, loss of dopamine cells. We have, we know that we have Lewy pathology in that region. Maybe that's messing up the, the physiology of, of, you know, serotonergic neurons or dopaminergic neurons in the refe that are affecting the serotonergic neurons. And again, that you might be able to somehow look at, at the change in the physiology of those cells and, and, and connect it to a phenotype. So can we create an uh, anxiety-like phenotype in mice by, by adding, putting alpha-synuclein in that part of, the, part of the brain? And the same thing, you know, I'm, I'm trying to work with a colleague about, about pain. You know, as I mentioned in my talk earlier, um, um, uh, uh, chronic pain is not very common, but it, it can be in some patients an early symptom. And again, we're looking at the involvement of areas like AE, part of the de descending pain modulating system, which is also, you also find the Lewy pathologies in, in these regions, you know, maybe that's contributing to our, to, you know, our level of, of pain sensation through the, through the spinal cord. So I, th so I think it's a, it's a very rich paradigm and, and ought, to be, ought to be followed. It ought to be, you know, look at the physiological basis for these symptoms. Um, and I think it'll give us a better understanding of this early time points of the disease. So it's, it's it's Sorry. Oh, go ahead. Oh. So, well, I'm just going to just ask about this idea of, 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 of pacemaking, using some of the intuitions that we have for midbrain dopamine. Um, there's a sense that, uh, you know, the, there are ideas about the stressful pacemaker theory and how um, metabolic mitochondrial stress is actually causing uh, cell death. And how well are those ideas? Is that, is that a starting point for you in all of your exploration, regardless of where you go? And how well is that mapping on to the, to, to, for example, the dorsal motor, uh, motor neuron of the, of the vagus? Right. So no, we're de that's definitely another aspect of it is this, is this selective vulnerability. So, you know, why are certain cells certain cells affected more in, in one disease than others. And, and this is sort of a, what's the expression of the, the million dollar question in neurodegeneration, because it seems like every neurodegenerative disease have, happens to have a cell type that's selectively um, vulnerable. And, and, you know, being trained by people like Jim Surmeyer, the, the thinking, again, this notion that physiology of the cells, the pathophysiology of the cells might be 
might have a contribution contribution to that. So, um, so yeah, so I saw, you know, why is there selective vulnerability? Jim Sermeyer showed that dopamine cells of one flavor in the SNC have a specific phenotype of calcium oscillations that causes them to have more basal oxidative stress, whereas the VTA, other dopamine neurons, don't have that, and they, they don't seem to have basal oxidative stress. And we know from human uh, pathology that those cells, are the, the ones that are selectively lost are the ones that are more vulnerable. So I, I worked in Jim's lab, and we kind of saw the same thing in vagal motor neurons, that they have this basal oxidative stress. But the interesting twist on the story was that we, when, when I, when I got my own lab here in Jerusalem, I said, okay, so we know this is basal oxidative stress. Let's add on this additional stressor, this additional alpha-synuclein. Does that make it worse? And we expected it to make it worse because that's sort of what people had seen in dopamine cells. They saw that alpha-synuclein is synonymous to more to excessive oxidative stress. And in fact, we found that the opposite is true. Somehow, the uh, vagal motor neurons, um, actually, when you when you add the stress, you either use a transgenic animal that has more alpha-synuclein or you acutely uh, inject it with alpha-synuclein, they, they, they're able to reduce their, their basal oxidative stress. They have some sort of um, adaptive response to lower the, the lower the basal oxidative stress. That's really interesting. You're able even to show that in a certain, in, in a specific animal, there was a divergent uh, uh, oxidative phenotype between dopamine cells and the substantia nigra and the, and the, and the DMV neurons. So what, they, they, they differ. The, the, the substantia nigra neurons, you know, are, worse off with the, with the alpha-synuclein and the DMV neurons, somehow it makes them better off. And we, we saw several physiological indications of that. So that, again, makes this question of selective vulnerability even more interesting, because now maybe, maybe we're able to explain this trajectory. I mean, we, we know clearly that the most, uh, the most vulnerable cells in Parkinson's are, are dopamine cells, substantia nigra, locus ceruleus neurons, DMV neurons, are lost in, in some patients, but there are many patients where, you know, there, there doesn't seem to be that much cell loss. So perhaps this ability to respond, you know, maybe these vagal motor neurons have some trick up their sleeve that enables them to respond to this additional stressor by reducing the levels of oxidative stress in the sense it becomes protective. So we don't, we don't, that's what we see. We don't, under, we don't understand it, but, but, it, but it's very, it's a very interesting lead to, to follow. So one theme in all of this is that then the disease symptoms are usually caused not by the, really by the loss of some neuron, but by the reaction of some other neuron that isn't lost. It's now behaving badly. So the dopamine cells go away, it's true, but the main effect of that is that other neurons in basal ganglia start to fire in the wrong pattern. And the dorsal motor nucleus of the vagus, the neurons that are affected by the synuclein don't die, but they actually fire in the wrong way themselves is without any intervening other kind of cell. Hey, Josh, you know, your camera adapts really well to the- We can see you. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's Sorry. like there's a little flash Sorry. and then it's, and it's fine, but sort of you'd be sitting in the dark. Uh, anyway, the, um, so what is the, it seems like it's a little bit simpler to think about the dorsal motor nucleus of the vagus neurons because they're, they're 
there's not a, a second stage. It's not like losing them causes some other neuron to go crazy. It's more like the disease just affects them directly and changes their firing pattern. So what is it that changes about the firing pattern? Yeah, so, so I, I mean, I think that's, a, that's an important point. I mean, in a sense, maybe makes our work a little bit easier. I mean, we can't tie it clearly to Parkinson's disease like we can do with the end stage models and, and look at the basal ganglion physiology. But on the other hand, they're much, the brainstem is much closer to the effectors. So if you have some change in the brainstem, you maybe have a clearer readout in you know somatic readout in the, in in our case in the, in the GI tract so that 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 is a that's a benefit because we can we can make a clearer connection between what we see happening to the cell and what and, and, and what happens in the in the you know in the body and the organ internal organs and that's something that's been really difficult in Parkinson's I mean we, we see people have tremor and people have oscillations of the basal ganglion we want to believe that one is related to the other but we can't really find a very simple association. The frequencies aren't even the same. The oscillations in the basal ganglia are, you know, 15, you know, 30 hertz, but the tremor is about five hertz. So, it, it, you know, that in a sense, it, it's easy. It, it, the, the, the prospect of being able to, to manipulate or perturb using these models of Parkinsonism, one of these brain scenarios, and, and then getting an immediate readout makes it easier. So in that, in that sense, it's true. I mean, it's, it's easier to correlate the physiological changes. But what, actually, what we've seen in, in vagal motor neurons is that they, they simply slow down. And, and, and vagal motor neurons are part of the parasympathetic system, which is the system that's supposed to, you know, the rest and digest component of our autonomic nervous system. So if cells, if the vagal motor neurons are slowing down, that means there's less parasympathetic tone, and, um, and that means that parasympathetic tone increases motility, then if we have less tone, it's, that can possibly explain reduced motility. And we know that, you know, constipation will be related to reduced motility. It's not that simple because most constipation has to do with the, with the large intestine, which is, isn't really innervated that much by the vagal, vagal motor neuron, but, but at least, um, you know, it, 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 may, it seems to make sense, and, it were, and at least we're able to show the connection in the animal models. That definitely, if we if we can if we make the vagal motor and slow down, then that, that directly affects the motility. Um, so do they normally do they normally carry some signal, or are they just sitting there going at some rate all the time, or do they sometimes speed up, slow down, and that so change the, of motility in the small I mean, so for Sure. The, the, the part, parts of reflexes. So uh, the, vagal, the vagal motor neurons, let's say looking at the cardiovascular system of the heart, so actually the parasympathetic tone there actually slows down heart rate. So we know that we have many, many um, reflexes that are there to, to you know, maintain our heart rate and our blood pressure. And, and these circuits in that part of the brain are involved in that, in these, in these reflexes. Um, in, ter in terms of heart rate, it's actually another population of, uh, Vagal motor, um, vagal motor neurons that come from another region of the brain, but and that which maybe responds faster. So, so there's definitely our autonomic, uh, um, you know, reflex components of our uh, behavior are 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 important in respect with respect to these these neurons, and that, and that's what they that's what they're part of. Um, and and again, people with Parkinson's disease have orthostatic hypertension, so they have a lot. It's called general dysautonomia. Constipation is only one component. There's a general dysautonomia. The autonomous nervous system is, you know, off kilter and, and 
a lot of it is the parasympathetic component. So again, we think that this can explain it. Um, I mean, the circuits, these circuits are pretty complicated. They're not as complicated as the basal ganglia, but but they're um, but there's still something to learn. I mean, about about these reflexes, and that's actually something we we might you know look at eventually. Is here in, in our study up to now, we've seen like as Charlie you mentioned um, a reduction in, in the basal firing. That's all that's all we studied. But there, of course, there's going to be a moment by moment component, and that could be interesting to correlate. You know, can we actually see you know the change in the vagal in the vagal system? Uh, corresponding to some changes in the GI tract, or in breathing, or in heart rate, um, but we have we have we're not there yet. So reflex means something special in this circumstance. I mean, most people's idea about about a reflex it may uh, maybe tracks back to the stretch reflex, where you sort of imagine that the motor neuron is sitting there doing nothing, and some sensory input comes in, and the motor neuron fires an action potential or two, and then something move some muscle moves. But these are not waiting for anything. There's, they fire along all the time. So they function more like a kind of like an analog signal, I guess. And their, their action potentials get integrated in the intestine to produce a relatively slowly changing signal that has to do with firing rate. Is that, is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. And I, I, we also we know, for instance, that our you know our, our heart rate is is under constant vagal tone. So our pacemaker, our, our sinoatrial node pacemaker, is much faster than it is when our heart is beating and innervated. So we're all under constant vagal tone. If, if we you know if, if we disconnect our heart from vagal firing, our heart rate will probably go up to around hundred beats per minute. But it isn't. It's usually around 70, 75, 60, and that's because so there is, there's definitely a vagal tone, both on the intestine and on other internal organs. And yeah, in that sense, it, it, it does change. You also see changes in the firing rate with breathing. So all, all these components are sort of combined. You can, you can look at the firing rate of these neurons and see them modulated by heart rate, modulated by breathing. Um, so I guess if they're firing at the wrong rate, the, the reflex circuit is effectively looks like its gain is too low or um, it looks like there's a signal there that isn't really there because the actual firing rate of the neurons is the signal from that nucleus. And so basically the nucleus is constantly sending a signal that would normally happen, but would happen in some special time. Maybe when digestion is supposed to be postponed and uh, and so basically it's saying postpone digestion all the time. I mean, is this too sim simple of a way to think about, to think about it? No, I mean, there's clearly a huge literature and, and, and you know, this description of, you know, vagal innovation is a little bit simplified because, you know, it might do one thing to the muscle and it might, and, you know, the intestine has their own pacemakers. I mean, the, the, the intestine is also autonomous. So, so there are really interesting interactions. These are interacting oscillators. Right, they're right. They're interacting and the heart is also oscillator. So basically, this is a kind of neuronal uh, connection between interacting oscillators that we're not really very familiar with. Uh, I mean, as neurophysiologists, it's not usually what we study. Right, right. I mean, we ought to, I definitely ought to be more familiar. There's, you know, 
definitely previous generations to this day, they are excellent physiologists who study, study this, know, know a lot about these, you know, pacemakers and in their interaction. And, um, but I think it's time, you know, to be able to understand Parkinson's disease, it requires us to really, you know, put our money where our mouth is and, and also begin understanding those interactions, the interface of the neuronal os oscillators with, with uh, intrinsic oscillators of the gut and the heart, et cetera. Isn't it remarkable because in the basal ganglia where Parkinson's disease symptoms, other symptoms form, again, you have this group of interacting oscillators that are, that are representing signals in a way that isn't the usual way of talking about the cerebral cortex or the spinal cord motor neuron, which is our most, our most familiar neurons that we think about. And that has impeded our understanding of Parkinson's disease because we couldn't really wrap our minds around interacting oscillators as a neuronal form. And there it is, I mean, a completely different system, a kind of unrelated system. But then again, we see this problem of, of interacting oscillators being at the source of the problem. Coincidence? I think not. So how about, how about anosmia? Another important prodromic symptom of Parkinson's disease. Maybe that one is a little better diagnostically because anosmia isn't super common among everybody. Yeah, that, that's definitely true. And there are there are people who are working. I mean, there are definitely a lot of, you know, I, I, have, a, I have somebody I know in, in Sweden I recently met. I mean, there are definitely are people looking at, at that, but that's more related to the fact that we also know that the Louis pathologies actually affect you know the, the you know your your olfactory system it's also one of the early i didn't mention it but it's one of the earliest stages and in fact some people think that that's you know there might be that actually maybe where parkinson starts and then it goes you know somehow into the gut and then from the gut back into the into the brainstem so but we, we definitely know that that louis pathologies in in the olfactory system are, are also an early stage of Parkinson's disease. So that's not something I specifically work on. Um, what is the effector that gets us from alpha-synuclein overexpression to breaking a pacemaker or, you know, or uh, changing a KV for density? Like what, what do we imagine is, this, is the actual connection there? So, I mean, o over the years, I've tried, I've looked at all sorts of hypotheses and I think, you know, m maybe all of them might be correct. Or some of them, one, you know, one I thought, one I used to think about was, we know that alpha-synuclein binds uh, phospholipids prefer preferentially. And I, I think it's very likely that one of the things that happens, um, although I haven't been able to demonstrate this, uh, is that, for instance, you know, we know PIP2 modulates calcium channels. So it could be that somehow, you know, alpha-synuclein, too much of it is screwing up, is, you know, maybe binding too much to PIP2, and then there's not enough of it to, you know, so it's causing some effective modulation of calcium, calcium channels. That could be one, one thing that's happening. One thing we, we tried to propose in a recent study is that alpha-synuclein causes changes in neuronal morphology. Um, and so in our case, we saw neurons shrinking and we think that shrinking, if a cell 
cell shrinks, but it expresses the same amount of uh, ion channels, then the current density will be different. And the thing that affects the integration and the, and the changes in, in membrane voltage of a neuron is the current density, not the total current. So, so a cell shrinking, it's actually pretty natural that it'll, it'll, it can mess up. If, 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 if it's not compensating for, this, for the amount of channels it's expressing, it should change way the way it voltages char, char, uh, charges. And if it's a pacemaker, it's gonna change the pacemaking. So that's one thing we believe we, we have demonstrated, but you know, maybe we could, we could do some more work on that. Um, uh, so yeah, there, I mean, there might be other, other, all sorts of other interactions that alpha synuclein, this also requires, you know, a better knowledge of cell biology, which is really not my forte. Um, so whatever it is, you imagine that it would be something that sort of propagates transsynaptically, right? Because the idea is that this is an expanding syndrome, right? Or is that just, is that a kind of a toy idea or, or there is actual so, data so that it's expanding? Definitely, you know, the broad hypothesis is that that's what happens, is that somehow there's transsynaptic, uh, you know, movement of, of, of the alpha synuclein that then, you know, nucleates in the next station and goes on. Uh, and that's why some people like to call it a prion-like disease. And, and definitely there've been a lot of animal models that have shown this, you know, um, that have shown that this is possible. So if you, if you, if you put alpha synuclein in, this, in you know, one part of the brain, you'll end up finding it somewhere else. Or if even in humans, if it was, in, you know, I, I think in a graft, if you put a graft and the graft is healthy, eventually it'll develop the alpha synuclein. So we know, we know that's possible that that happens. Um, but on the other hand, it really isn't a prion disease in the sense that it goes from every neuron to every neuron. There's there there are you know there's certain targets and it doesn't even seem to expand um, exactly according to the connectome. So so that's only one component. The connectome is one component. Which cells are connected to the other? But then there's something about a cell autonomous component about specific neurons that seem to take it up more, affect it more, and I think that's you know that's part of the story. So. We, you know, we're interested in that aspect. It's okay. It, it seeds in a certain cell type. How does it change that cell type's cell type uh, phenotype? And we're sort of agnostic about actually, you know, our project, the project that I talked about, you know, an hour ago is sort of agnostic about this question of, of whether alpha synuclein is moving around because we're just saying, okay, we have it in one point here. It's already doing something interesting irrespective of the question of whether it's moving between cells or not. So we think of the, all the basal ganglia dysfunction as, as rooted, at least I, I, from my simplistic understanding, that it's rooted in this loss of dopamine and that everything is sort of, everything else is sort of this compensation that happens. But are there, is there reason to think that there are cell autonomous things happening in the other rhythmic or the other oscillators in the basal ganglia? Or, I mean, is there, are, are there thoughts about that? So I mean, of course, of course, that's something that you know Ch Charlie has worked on extensively, and you know other people that we, we know that once there's a loss of dopamine, then other oscillators that are not you know neuromodulators, but are actually the main players, the basically they their their firing gets screwed up. In fact, but, but but do they have Louis? I mean, is that secondary to Louis pathology or or this whatever this this uh, the cell autonomous part of this is, and not the network? Effect. Actually, you know, the striatum, which is the main, you know, part of the basal ganglia, there really isn't uh, a lot of uh, alpha synuclein pathology in the, in the, in the striatum. So, so really, this, that late stage of Parkinson's really has to do with loss of dopamine and then, you know, maybe changes of gain 
in the circuit and all sorts of neurons responding to the loss of dopamine directly or loss of you know, secondary effects of what loss of dopamine does. The, the alpha pathology is less important specifically within the basal thing. It's more important to think uh, you know, earlier on, but it definitely, it, it definitely con contributes, very likely contributes or is associated with, very co highly correlated with the loss of dopamine cells. So once the dopamine cells are gone, that starts a whole new can of worms, which is sort of being studied for many decades already. Um, but again, we're more, I'm more interested in the, you know, regions that are directly affected by alpha-synuclein and how those cells respond and how they may lead to certain prodromal symptoms. So I was wondering if these, the, this nuclein pathology is controlling motility in the small intestine, but not the large intestine, but most constipation, you say, is caused by changes in the large intestine, then couldn't, is there a way to directly measure small intestine motility as a possible uh, diagnostic tool? Right, so that's, that. so they, they, I actually met up with a gastroenterologist in, in, in the hospital near, nearby who, who has one of these smart pills that you can swallow something and sometimes they have a camera, but they actually don't have to. They can measure things like temperature and acidity and then they know, depending, you know, what part of the GI tract, because every part, the stomach is different from the small intestine. But if you look at all those parameters, if you measure them, you actually know when it moves from one to the other. And then you can measure in a human how long time of passage. So in principle, that's one direct way of, direct way of looking at it. Um, and, and, you know, again, if, if, if we become convinced that what we discovered in an animal model is true in humans, that, that could be... A diagnostic. Another aspect is again, um, you know, the vagal motor neurons innervate the heart, so you could also look at changes in heart rate. I mean, pe people will, uh, studying Parkinson's disease have thought about these things. There have been studies about heart rate variability in Parkinson's. They haven't been very um, conclusive or very helpful, but you know, we think that uh, if we're right about this sort of uh, vagal neuropathy, that this reduction of vagal a tone occurring because of alpha-synuclein uh, accumulation in the brainstem, then, you know, maybe there are specific challenges like atropine, which is uh, um, something that, you know, stops the, the activity of the parasympathetic uh, system. So maybe you could challenge, you could maybe put up, put somebody up for a, a test where you challenge, you know, you challenge, look at their heart rate recovery after exercise and look at how you challenge that with, alpha, with, with, with atropine and see what, is there a change in the vagal component? So, I, I, you know, I mean, I, I'm not a clinician, I'm not a gastroenterologist, I'm not a, not a Parkinson's clinician, but, you know, I'm, I'm trying to speak to people like that and convince them to maybe try, try things like that uh, on, on groups of patients to see whether any of that is vi viable. Um, any of those ideas are viable. I don't think there's any clinician who would be convinced right just now, but maybe you know, over time, if we can demonstrate that this is a real thing that happens in patients, we might, we might catch on more. What's the advantage of uh, early diagnosis of Parkinson's disease? Mm -hmm. Is there a particular advantage to knowing? So, so yeah, everybody asks me that. That's a great question. I think uh, for, for a specific person with Parkinson's or a person that's worried about developing Parkinson's, you know, maybe some people might be interested in knowing earlier. A lot of people might say, I don't want to know a day earlier than I need to. Why, why, why be anxious about it? Why, 
But I think for as a, for a, as a field, you know, we want to be able to, you know, move to an earlier time point. And, and, and the reason being that, you know, as you know, for Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease, most of the therapies that have been, have been, have been you know, tried and tested, you know, spending billions of dollars over the past 20 years have failed. One, colossally, one after the other, nothing works. Um, including a recent um, trial that was sort of grew out of the Surmeyer calcium hypothesis. And, and of course, one of the reasons these things have failed is it could be that even though the, you know, the biology behind it makes sense and it's been demonstrated in enough models, but you might be trying it on humans who are way too, too late in the game. And if we were able to, we were able to find an earlier time point and say, okay, now based on anosmia and, and your vagal output and something else and anxiety, we think you're, you have a high likelihood of having Parkinson's disease. Maybe some of these therapies that have failed today, you know, you could try them again at an earlier time point and suddenly you would see that they work. Um, I don't know if we can convince, once, once a clinical trial fails, I don't know if you can convince pharma to try it again, but, but, but at least it makes sense. If you have an earlier time point, maybe these therapies actually do work. Most ideas about Parkinson's disease are neuroprotective. How can we protect the dopamine cells? And I guess maybe we don't have a perfect neuroprotective strategy for dopamine cells, but when we do have one, it's going to be too late if we give it to patients who've already lost all their dopamine cells. So I think, don't we need to be preparing for the for that time by figuring out, you know, what the time sequence is from the first detectable thing? And, and that's, that's what I think about. I mean, you know, what 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 you know, I'm putting this emphasis on physiological biomarkers, but of course, there's a huge uh, industry and, 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 and academia, you know, it's working on, you know, real biomarkers, what other people consider, most scientists consider biomarkers, you know, I don't know, sebum, you know, the stuff you, you exude from your skin, all sorts of other, you know, possible indications of, uh, of, uh, of, 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 in fact, one of the, one, I think, I think the nerve, the nerves that innervate our sebaceous glands actually exhibit alpha-synuclein accumulation. So there are, there are some biomarkers that people are taking skin punches to try to discover. So, so you know, I was, I was listening to, um, and I was at a conference at the Van Andel Institute in, in, in Grand Rapids a few months ago, and, and there's a lot of optimism that, you know, within 20 years from now, there will be various, um, you know, validated and reliable biomarkers for earlier diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. Hopefully, maybe the physiological one will be one of them, but they're also definitely, you know, biochemical ones. And, and so I think there's, there's reason for optimism for, you know, moving towards earlier diagnosis for Parkinson's disease in the next 20 years. I'm, I'm wondering if some of these, understanding some of these pathological or these physiological markers in these early tissues could be, could serve as like an, an organizational principle for understanding homeostasis, homeostatic mechanisms. Like we heard a, a talk about uh, proteostasis last week and this idea that there are these programs that kick in that if you just sort of understand what, what those little networks are that, that get triggered, 
um, with some kind of insult like this, presumably the, the alpha-synuclein overexpression, um, that those can somehow be triggered differentially or, or different, different, different types of modules could be triggered in different cell types and that that could somehow give us a sense of where we could intervene and at which point, if this is an expanding syndrome, like how do we arrest it like it, at one point, right? I mean, it, it, it seems like there would be clues there, right? In understanding how cells respond to these, this type of overexpression, if we imagine that that's how it works. Right, so, so, I mean, homeostasis, of course, there's a network component, which is, you know, just as Charlie mentioned earlier, that there's this divide between the cortex and, and, and uh, you know, cortex-oriented people thinking about neurons as, as not, not as pacemakers, but, you know, being driven by input and people who study pacemakers where they they actually can drive themselves. So the same thing, you know, the questions about homeostasis and cortical networks usually focus on network homeostasis from people like Gina Trigiano and, and there's, that's a huge area of research, but again, I'm talking about cellular uh, mechanisms. Yeah. Right, so cells pacemakers, I think really the emphasis is on, uh, on this cellular homeostasis of, of maintaining a, uh, a certain range of, of fine rates, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm certain I'm certain that those things exist. So um, we think, for instance, in the context of the DMV, that there's that that at least from our data, and it's not it's not I wouldn't say we've proven it completely, but there's an indication that that these homeostatic mechanisms are at play to a certain extent because some currents, some channels seem to be homeostatically re regulated. So we think, think that we see calcium channels being homeostatically regulated, but on the other hand, others aren't. So there's a, there's a, you know, there's a screw up and that's what basically throws the, throws the cell up. On the other hand, it could, it could also be actually protective. Maybe what we think is not working properly is actually what the cell is intending to do. It wants to have, it wants to have uh, a larger potassium current so it it wants to slow down because if it slows down, that means less calcium influx. Less calcium influx means less oxidative stress that's driven by calcium influx. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I think definitely, you know, thinking about homeostatic uh, responses is, is is really important. I mean, as, as Charlie mentioned earlier, a lot of the symptoms uh, of Parkinson's are not are not necessarily the the initial effect, but rather you know, the maladaptive homeostatic response that turns out to be maladaptive in, in certain respects. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's definitely an important aspect of thinking about these issues. There's two kinds of homeostasis. And I think a lot of cell biologists think homeostasis is a device used by the cell to make, to take care of itself, to make sure it doesn't die, that kind yeah. of stuff. But uh, homeostasis could also be the cell trying to make sure that it continues to perform its function that's required by the rest of the circuit. Mm -hmm. And those might be in conflict, just like happens with people. And so the, the homeostasis that you need from these neurons is for them to keep their firing rate and to keep their responsiveness to inputs, even if maybe it to stress on them, um, their mitochondrial enzymes and stuff. 
Let's hope that all the cells think about their responsibilities to the brain rather than their simply their own survival. Yeah. Are we gonna are we gonna end on that note, Josh? Do you want to have the last word rather well, than that Borg like? I mentioned that on the alumnus of this lab. So of course for me it's a real honor and it's to be back and be able to speak speak to Charlie again, talk about these things and we still have points of interest and I hope uh, to visit in person after this pandemic and you know we can pick up and continue talking about these ideas in the future. Definitely looking forward to that. Hope to see you soon. All right, thanks guys. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank you, Josh Goldberg. Thank you, Charlie.